I'd invite you to open your copy of the scriptures and join me in the gospel of John. This morning we're going to find ourselves in chapter 7 and we're actually going to have an introduction in the first 13 verses of this chapter that really unfolds over chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10. It's a large section of Jesus' teaching and this back and forth that takes place in Jerusalem. What what we're also looking at here in, in chapter 7 and verses 1 through 13 not only starts off this larger section, but even a smaller section in just chapters 7 and 8. And I hope that as you read these passages of Scripture in the days to come, and even this afternoon if you have time, that you will see that every question that is raised about who Jesus is, is answered by Jesus himself. And I think that's really important for us to understand because as we so often come to the scriptures, we, we who are Christians assume a lot of things and we might miss the fact that you have real unbelievers who are asking questions about who Jesus is and his identity and he is speaking to them in these chapters. Before we begin, begin our text uh, reading of it, I, I just want to ask you if if you ever saw those like old parchment type of scrolls, I mean, I don't know what it was made of, but it, they're like at gift shops and you unroll them as souvenirs and it says on this day of your birthday, here's all the things that happened throughout history and they've been weathered and treated with some chemicals so they look like they're really thick and heavy. Anybody? Or is that just me? Okay, maybe it's just me. I had one of those when I was a kid, and I, we picked it up somewhere on a family vacation, and, uh, you know, it's got all these historical facts. Well, today is August 6th, in case you didn't know. Let me show you, share with you some of the interesting historical facts that took place on this day in previous years. 1787, the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia began debate on the first draft of the Constitution. And in 1806, the end of the Holy Roman Empire came about. It was neither holy, nor Roman, nor an empire. And so Francis II renounced the title and instead took on the title Emperor of Austria. A little more close to home, across the pond as it were, in 1858, the great bell was cast for the great clock of Westminster. Big Ben was made on this day in 1856. In 1914, Austria-Hungary declared war on Russia and Serbia declared war against Germany. The beginning of the Great War. In 1945, the USB-29 Superfortress Enola Gay dropped the atomic bomb on the city of Hiroshima. Moving from a really tragic moment to something a little bit more low shelf kind of thing. In 1960, I wonder if you were there, do you know what I'm about to say? Chubby Checker performed his first version of The Twist on the Dick Clark Show. Raise your hand if you saw that. Oh, we have some right here. 
1965, on this day, President Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act prohibiting voting discrimination against minorities. In 1983, we're getting closer, the NFL, the first NFL exhibition game in Europe was the Minnesota Vikings actually winning against the St. Louis Cardinals, 28-10 at Wembley Stadium. And in 1991, all you kids with smartphones, you'll be interested in this. A guy that you have never heard of probably by the name of Tim Barners-Lee, who was a computer scientist. He released files describing his idea for the World Wide Web. Man, that seems so long ago. There were other things that happened on this day in history. One of them is really important to me. On 1975, a baby was born into this world in Muncie, Indiana. And she's right there, all grown up. Love you, babe. Sorry. Let's move on from the historical events of today and turn to the historical events of our text. So I'm going to read John 7, verses 1 through 13. I'd ask if you'd follow along. If you're not familiar with scriptures, we have blue Bibles stationed throughout the auditorium. You're welcome to open one of those and find your way to the Gospel of John. There should be a page number coming up on the screen shortly, page 892. And if you don't have a copy of the scriptures, take this home with you. It's a gift from South Canyon uh, to you. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Now you may have seen in your bulletin a little piece of paper, and it's a, it's a little calendar of the Jewish calendar, sacred years, and the feast that took place during that time. A different calendar they operated under than our own day. But I thought this was helpful, especially as we work our way through these next chapters in the Gospel of John, because there's feasts that are going to be heavily spoken of, and this gives us a sense of how they correlate to our own calendars here in the West. From the text, we see that this is a time of year when the Jews celebrated the Feast of Booths, or tabernacles. You'll look at that little sheet, it'll tell you that it would be done and celebrated in our month of October. 
the feast was observed from the 15th of the month through the 21st. It was after the grape harvest. It was a couple months before the uh, Feast of Dedication. That feast was uh, commemorated by uh, one of the Maccabees, who after purging the temple from the defilement by the, the Greek um, Antiochus Epiphanes, he then declared a feast of dedication to commemorate the temple's cleansing. And so here we are in the midst of feasts. These feasts will show up in chapter 7 and 8, again in chapters 9 and 10. And this feast of booze, as it were, it followed shortly after the Day of Atonement, which marked the conclusion of the annual religious cycle for the Jewish people. That feast that first began in the first month of Passover and unleavened bread, six months prior. Scholars tell us that this feast of booths ran for seven days and it was uh, marked as the most favorable and most popular of all the annual feasts. It commemorated how God provided for ancient Israel as they were in the wilderness. And those that participated were required to reenact that historical period of time in the wilderness by living in temporary structures. They would cut down branches, trees, and take leaves, and they would build for themselves what we might call a tent. A special feature of this feast time was water drawing and the lamp lighting ceremonies. These events were poured each day. You remember, Israel was in the wilderness, and water is scarce in the wilderness. God had to provide it for them and lead them to wells or produce wells out of rock. I just read this morning from Numbers. So here, here is this reenactment where they would pour out water every day, where they would light lamps every day to remind them of how dependent they were on God during the wilderness. And as we will see, Jesus drew on this teaching. So when you get to verses 37 and 38 of chapter 7, and Jesus is like, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me. He's taking the rituals that they would have done in the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, you may see in your translation, and he's pointing out himself as the one who gave the bread of life to Israel in the wilderness, who also was the rock that gave them water in the wilderness. He was also the light, the fire that led them in the wilderness. And so in, in Jewish modern day, as John is writing, the festival, during the festival, people would give thanks for the rainfall which nourished the harvest, but they would also begin to look forward to that day coming when God's Spirit would be poured out on the kingdom of God. And, and so these associations came about where the tabernacle and the water pouring out rituals began to, began to point to something even greater, even better coming. Zechariah 14 speaks of a day when God said all nations who were once Israel's enemies will come to Jerusalem to worship the Lord of hosts and keep the feast of booths. Now, I walked you through some history, a timeline of this day. I've taken you back to history, a timeline and events of that day, and the key to all of this opening passage is timing. 
And I want to just simply say that God's timing is always perfect. You look at verse uh, 1. We see that Jesus went about in Galilee. He was not going to go to the feast in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, if you remember back in chapter 6 and verse 15, after Jesus fed 5,000 men plus all the thousands of women and children, they wanted to make him a king, and they were going to take him by force, but he had to leave, and he hid himself. Jesus, the king, has now become Jesus, the pariah. The people that wanted to make him king are now the very people who are after him. Verse 13 of our passage this morning tells us, For fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of Jesus. The Jewish leaders had made such a stink about Jesus. They had literally put some kind of bounty or something on his head. They've made him a pariah so that ordinary citizens are afraid to talk openly of Jesus. And yet it's ironic to me that if Jesus wanted to be a king, all he had to do was give them cakes of bread. He could have just kept feeding them. If he wanted them to make him a king, he could have done that and been made a king. And yet, while the Jewish leaders are chasing Jesus and trying to trap him both in lies and in contradicting the scriptures, and also to bring him to some level of conviction in their courts, they cannot lay a hand on him. Why? Jesus won't allow himself to do anything that's outside the Father's will. He is so committed to that. And yet, once again, we see here in verses 2 through 9, his own brothers who do not believe in him are trying to goad him into grabbing glory for himself. Jesus, you've been here in Galilee far too long. There's the biggest feast of the year. Everybody's going to be there. This could be your coming out party. You could show the world who you are. You could do more signs for your disciples. Hey, if you wanted a stage, a platform to make a big splash, this is the time, Jesus. Why don't you go up and do that? I think that reminds us, or ought to remind us, that his brother's advice... Um, was actually counter the will of God, which is why Jesus says, my time has not come. His time has not come, and so he will not be a king before he is supposed to be a king. He will not be caught before God delivers him over, and he will not make himself known until God sends him to be known. In essence, what the brothers are doing is duplicating Satan's temptation of Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. Remember that? He takes him up to a high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world. They've been given to me. I'll give them to you if you just bow the knee. Then, and it starts with bread in the wilderness, right? You're hungry, 40 days of fasting and testing, and it's hard, it's hot, you're hungry. There are nothing but rocks here. That would make a great thing for you to just turn into bread and feed yourself. Why don't you just live independently of your father for a moment? Take care of yourself. Hey, Jesus, let's have some fun. Let's go on top of the temple, that high, high place. And, and looking down hundreds of feet below, why not just cast yourself off there? Do some cliff jumping, Jesus. 
Hasn't the scripture said that God's given his angels authority to protect you so that you won't dash your foot against the stone? He baits Jesus, and this is what his brothers are doing. I think it's really practical when you think about how, how strong peer pressure is. And if you aren't convinced of who you really are, how easy it is to fall into it. You see, back in chapter 5, Jesus said very clearly that he can do nothing but what he sees his father doing. We see that in chapter 5 and verse 19. He can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, the son does likewise. Later in verse 30, Jesus says he can do nothing on his own. He is here to do his father's will. And that gave Jesus so much liberty. I know this is the heart of every human person, right? Rules restrict. Rules corner us. They pressure us. They force us to conform. And we, by our very nature, chafe at rules. But you know what rules do? God's rules do? Not man's. And I'm not talking about man's as, you know, like speed limit. That's a good thing. We're all thankful for that, especially this time of year when there's so many extra visitors in our community. But I'm talking about God's rules actually give freedom. God's rules make it very clear what is allowable and what isn't. You have then absolute freedom to do the right thing. Don't commit adultery if you're married. Men, don't look upon a woman with lust in your heart. You know what these rules free you to do? They free you to live a pure life without distraction because this is a temptation you are to avoid. This is a thing that will bring only death. Life comes through God's word. And here's Jesus being pressed by his own brothers who were told in verse 5, did not believe in him. And this would be a hard lift, right? Growing up in the house, yeah, Jesus has always been mom's favorite. But, but still, that you came from heaven, that, that you are our hope of eternal life, come on. You stink just like the rest of us. We've been in the shop working with dad. We smell the B.O. You are not who you say you are. Well, here's the reality. These brothers had a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of Jesus. He would not allow himself to be pressured to act before his time. And Jesus tells his brothers that he's not going in verse 8, but then later he does go. Now, if you are like me, and as a young, precocious, maybe a little arrogant person, I would find stuff like this in the scriptures, and I would be like, yeah, that's the reason why Jesus is a fraud. He just lied. I mean, maybe that's okay. Maybe you can lie to your brothers. Maybe that's the justification to tell them, I didn't take your stuff. I didn't break it. It was Joel. It was John. <laughs> no, here's what's really going on. Jesus did not lie. The prop, uh, Numbers 23, 19 tells us, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. And so once again, we cannot forget that Jesus said the son can do nothing of his own accord. He has to follow the Lord's instructions, the father's instructions. And what's interesting here is that the Greek actually helps us out where our English translations 
um, just translate two different words in the same idea. So there's two Greek words here, kairos and chronos. Chronos, everybody kind of knows that chronography, right? It's time, chronological. Kairos also means time, but it means time in the sense of when it's opportune, when it's the right time, when it's favorable. Whereas chronos is what, like we did starting, I give you an opening illustration of dates through the last several hundred of years of events that took place on this time. Chronos is a chronological event and time. And so Jesus uses this language that says he will not come because it is not the right time for him to be there. Not that he would not be there at all. It's lost in our translation, but this is Jesus basically saying, I have to wait for the right time in order to do what I'm supposed to do. And it is not the right time for me to go up with you. I think this is also another sobering reminder for us here. Jesus is declaring, what does he say here? My time has not yet come in verse 6, but your time is always here. My brothers, I came to give my life for you. And yet you don't understand that the world cannot hate you because, but it hates me. And the reason it hates me is because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. My time has not fully come. You're of this world, and therefore you're free to go and act and live and do anything you think is right, and the world will accept you because you are not preaching against it. And this is, this is a reality that sometimes we forget as Christians, is that we are to be in the world but not of the world. Non-Christians have the freedom to live out their lives apart from any concern of God's ways, God's will, or God's timing. Unbelievers are not governed. They are not at all concerned about the appropriateness of what God may be doing. Like Jesus' brothers, unbelievers can walk openly in the light of day because they are a part of the system that is in rebellion against God. But Christian, this is not how we are to live. And I wonder if there are some here with us this morning who maybe find themselves more comfortable and more welcomed by the world than within the Christian community. Jesus went on to say the reason he was hated was because he preached against the evil things the world was doing. Now, this is just another sobering reminder for us as Christians to consider our own lives and activities. Are we walking in the light or in the darkness? I mean, should there be things that we just stop watching because they don't help us unto godliness? Are there things that we should stop doing because they do not reflect a submission to the will of God? John tells us in verses 10 through 13, there's this divisiveness over Jesus. He provides a little bit of commentary he tells us Jesus, his brothers went, then Jesus went up, and notice Jesus didn't go up to make a show, but he went up secretly in private. So when he does what God has called him to do, he's also going to do it in the way that God has called him to do it. 
The Jews were looking for Jesus. They were asking everyone, where is he? Verse 12 says there was a lot of muttering that the people are conflicted over Jesus. Some think he's a good man, a man, and others think he is leading the people to violate the scriptures. And therefore, under Old Testament law, he should be sentenced to death. This divisiveness, this uncertainty about Jesus, this this wide variety of opinions and views of Jesus from being a good guy to being a troublemaker who deceives people. What we see in this text is this is the same kind of response that Jesus is given today. We look at this passage of Scripture and we understand that this is just an introduction to what is going to happen during this feast. Chapter 7, we have these divisions of dates where verse 14, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went into the temple and began teaching. If you look down in verse 37 of chapter 7, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And Jesus, all of chapter 7 takes place during this one week feast. And then chapter 8 gives us another discourse, which is followed in chapter 9 by another uh, long, detailed description by John, which then wraps up in the beginning of chapter 10. Jesus is moving, and John is writing in such a way that he wants to move us to think about the claims that Jesus makes and the objections. You notice there's no signs, there's no miracles that Jesus does in chapters 7 and 8. Instead, we have two times where he is there preaching in the temple. This this is, going back to that time line of things, This is the beginning of Jesus' last appearance in Jerusalem. Within two months, Jesus will be on a cross. So as you read chapters 7 through 10, as you look forward to these passages, I encourage you to think about this. What Jesus is saying here in his last days not only encapsulates his conviction about who he is, but it answers every objection that people raise in those moments. It also demonstrates to us the necessity for Christ to go to the cross. The Jews are captivated with their current culture and events, the status quo, and they're resisting Christ, and yet Jesus is not letting them off the hook. He's going to keep pressing in. He's going to keep calling them to trust in him. He's going to keep inviting them to believe in him. He's going to use the images of their own holidays to point how they are all fulfilled in him. God's timing is perfect. There are people that want to hurry Jesus up, but he will not allow them to. There are people that want to shut Jesus down, but they have no power to do so. I wonder where you're at in life. Where where are things setting with you right now? What might God be doing in you and through you 
at this very moment that either you are trying to fast forward and get over with, or you have other plans to get to, or you are clueless about it, and you haven't considered at all that God might actually be working a good plan to bring you to repentance and faith. You've just been living life for the moment. Like Jesus' brothers, hey, go out with a bang. Do whatever you want. Stop beating around the bush. Just get to the point. Tell everyone. Here's a moment where we see that people have different opinions of who Jesus is, and yet he is bedrock convinced. He will not be moved. And so as we look forward, as this is just kind of a diving board, as it were, into these upcoming weeks and um, months of studying through these next chapters, I want to ask you this. Who is Jesus? And what does he have to do with you? It is no mistake that what is taking place in your life right now at this very moment is ordained by God. That's good and that's bad, right? For some of us, it's really comforting. And for others of us, it's it's really hard pill to swallow. That means that all this garbage I'm dealing with, you're telling me that God's behind all that? Well, there's a lot to unpack there in that question. Some of it is the consequences of our own decisions. What you sow is what you reap. You've been doing a lot of bad stuff. You're going to get a lot of you're going to get a lot of return on your investment in sowing to the bad. And there are consequences you can't avoid. But what I'm trying to tell you is that there is a God who's sovereign over, above all this, who stands behind it all. And in spite of your sinfulness, in spite of your stubbornness and your willfulness, he is presenting a Jesus to you that you need. And he's simply asking you, do you believe? Will you believe? Every argument that Jesus' enemies present in chapters 7 and 8 are all answered. John's collected them all here in these two chapters to help us wrestle with, well, can this one be the Christ? For the Jews living in that time, they're like, is the the coming one, is the Messiah that we have been longing for, the the one in which all of our ceremonies are about to kind of uh, give us a taste of what could be in the future, is that one Does he come from mysterious secret beginnings? Or was he a known figure of David's descent? Would Then there's the question, can anyone do these miracles that Jesus is doing if he's not the Messiah? These are the things that we have to wrestle with. And these are the things that John wants us to wrestle with in order that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And that in that believing, we might have the forgiveness of sins. So we come to this moment. We came with the idea of timing and the perfection of God's timing. We've walked through an introduction to this passage, and we've seen that God's hand cannot be forced. Neither can God's hand be prevented from doing what he intends to do. 
This is the God of the Christian faith. He is powerful. He cannot be stopped. And he sent Jesus into this time, this chronos time, at the right time to do what Paul says in Galatians, that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son to dwell in the body of a man so that he might go to the cross, take on the punishment that was meant for us to redeem us. Let me just say it simply. This is a day of salvation. This is a time to be saved. This is a place of comfort to put your faith in the one who cannot change, who will not change, but whose will is being done. Even when his enemies are opposing him. Lord God, we pray simply that you would work in us and through us. Change our hearts so that we might see that this Christ who declares that he is the Son of God, who came to do the Father's will, who speaks not of his own authority, but of the Father's, is indeed the one who is the true way, the only way, the life and the light of the world. We pray that you in your spirit would bring about not only faith in these things, but the repentance and the freedom from sin and the sinful habits that we choose. Help draw people to you, but also, Lord, help those of us who have believed in your name to find the strength, the resolve, to stand firm on the faith in the days in which we live, to not be moved from these truths. Help us to know our identity in Christ, and that would shape us as we interact with the unbelieving world around us, that we would be strong in the Lord in the power of his might. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.